Well, if you have a, a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 12, it's a short passage we're going to look at this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. It's probably a very familiar passage to many of you. And I'll ask if we're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What does the scripture say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So let's, let's eat and let's ask God's blessing upon our meal. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would once again... Uh, Help us as we know that we don't live by bread alone, that we live, uh, we are sustained uh, for this life in serving and following you. We're sustained by by your word as manna from heaven. And we pray that you would give us understanding, that you work in us by your spirit, that you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Increase our faith. Give us grace to, to know you better because we spent this time here in your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I thought about uh, calling this sermon, not that sermon titles really mean much, nobody pays attention to them, but just calling it Pay Your Taxes and uh, advertising an outreach campaign uh, for this Sunday. And I'm sure people would have uh, beaten down the doors to get here to hear about uh, what Jesus has to say about our obligation to pay taxes. Uh, Always a popular uh, topic. Um, Well, here in this this brief little text, uh, we are faced with a subject that uh, if we give it much thought, it's proved to be one of the most perplexing and even contentious questions uh, throughout the church's long history, and that is, what is the relationship between the church and the state? Have ever given that much thought? There are all kinds of differing opinions, even in uh, Reformed churches on that, uh, on that subject. As believers in Christ and servants of the King of Kings, what is our obligation to the, to the earthly civil government? What are the boundaries and the limits of our obligations to that government? Uh, what about uh, when, as is often is the case, as we, we know that that government is often wicked and tyrannical? What do you do then? What is your obligation to a tyrannical government? Now, of this subject, uh, J.C. Ryle writes the following, and he's talking about this passage, too. He says, we shall do well to remember that of all questions which have perplexed Christians, none have ever proved so intricate. Can you see the word? None have ever proved so intricate and puzzling as the class of questions which the Pharisees and Herodians here propounded. What are the dues of Caesar and what are the dues of God? Where do the rights of the church end and where the rights of the state begin? What are lawful civil claims and what are lawful spiritual claims? All these are hard knots and deep problems which Christians have often found it difficult to untie 
and almost impossible to solve. These are not these are these are hard questions. These are hard things to deal with. And so it would be arrogant and foolish to think that we might solve this riddle in one in the span of one short sermon, which I won't promise to do today by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and so to do so would be beyond the scope of this little passage. This little passage isn't meant to uh, un- undo all those thorny problems and answer all of our questions. But I think that being said, there's a lot that you and I can learn and be re- maybe be reminded about uh, about this topic from this short passage in Mark's gospel. And so the first thing I'd like to look at here in our text uh, is this, uh, this trick question, this trap laid by the Pharisees and Herodians. Here in this passage, uh, you know, once again, we see another group of unbelieving Jewish religious and even now civic leaders coming to Jesus once again in order to try to get him in trouble. They're trying to lay a trap for Christ. And this trap, this question, this sending of the Pharisees and Herodians. Uh, remember, don't don't get fooled by the chapter divisions in your Bibles. Uh, don't don't think chapter 12 is some whole new thing from whole cloth. Uh, it is related to what goes goes before, and this this sending of these people to trap him was in response to what you read in chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 as well. Because what did Jesus do? Remember, Jesus cleansed the temple. He was throwing people out. He was throwing tables around, tossing the chairs over of those who bought and sold and uh, the money changers and all that. And so the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, what did they do? They came to Jesus in the end of chapter 11 and they said, hey, you know, uh, who died and made you boss? Where did you get this authority to do what you're doing? Uh, how do you, why is it that you can act like the temple is your house? You know, that, that's a, it's a, it was a pretty big thing for him to do. And they questioned, they, they denied, but they questioned his authority to do that. And so in the, the first 12 verses of this chapter that we're in now, Jesus tells a parable and he tells it against them. And they knew he told it against them. That this was about their rejection of the Messiah, uh, the son, the son of God. And then they, you know, they couldn't withstand his wisdom. They tried. Uh, they tried to trap him in words. They couldn't do it again. So what do they do? It's it's next man up. They're sending the bigger guns in. They're sending the Pharisees and the Herodians to see if they have any luck against him. And so what do you see in verses 13 to 14? You read this. It says, and and they, they is the chief priests, the scribes and the elders from the previous chapter. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk or in his words. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And then here it is. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now that that grouping of people coming to Jesus with this question, this trap, is a a strange group. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now you might remember that they were previously mentioned way back in chapter 3, in Mark 3, verse 6, there Mark writes, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel together with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So ever since the third chapter, early in the third chapter of Mark's gospel, they've had it out for Christ. They have wanted him dead since chapter 3. So now they're getting their chance. That's what they're doing now. And so 
Now, who were the Pharisees? You might be sitting here and it's easy to kind of assume we all know what they were, who they were, because you hear the word so much. But if I can boil it down, the Pharisees were kind of the uh, conservative theological scholars of the day. They were known for their strict observance of Judaism. In Philippians 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul, no less, tells us that in his previous life outside of Christ, he had once himself been a Pharisee and was very zealous for the religion and the views of the Pharisees. The Herodians, who were the Herodians? The name kind of tips it off a little bit. They were the ones who supported King Herod, right? They were the, they were the secularists. They were not religious folks as far as we know, maybe at all. They were probably much more concerned with politics and, than they were with religion. They, they were ones that would not be interested in, in rocking the boat or upsetting the apple cart. They, they, they liked things just the way they were. They had their power and influence from, from Rome, and they were satisfied with that arrangement. The Pharisees would not have been such. The Pharisees would not have been normally people that would have been teaming up with Herodians. They would have viewed them with some manner of contempt. Uh, William Henriksen calls this teaming up, quote, a strange coalition between the sanctimonious and the sacrilegious. This was not a normal combination of people. And it's not an accident and it's no small irony that this was the particular pairing of people who tried to trap Jesus with a question about church and state. It, it, it's for, for good reason that these particular groups of people were represented as asking that particular question. If you think about it, those two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't agree with each other on this question, did they? Did the Pharisees love having Rome with Rome's boot on the neck of Israel? Were they enthusiastic about paying, paying taxes to Caesar or acknowledging Rome's authority over Israel? No. The Herodians, were they enthusiastic about Israel being under the boot of Rome? Probably so. So these were not normally people that would be teaming up on much of anything. Well, even in our day, hatred for Christ still has a way of bringing together the strangest of bedfellows. You know, groups that if you examine them by themselves have, would seem to have much in the way of contentious differences and contrary purposes are often found, even in our day, colluding together against Christ and against his church. You know, the old saying, it's often attributed to Sun Tzu in the art of war. Where does he say? The enemy of my enemy is my what? My friend. Well, that's what these people were. That's what these people thought as well. You can imagine them looking at each other and saying, you know, I don't like you very much. And I don't like you either, but we really don't like him. And we have to do something about about Christ. And so in this in this passage, it might not look like it, but they really reveal the true nature of their wicked hearts in viewing Christ himself, who is the friend of sinners, viewing him as the greatest of their enemies, their greatest enemy in their eyes, was Jesus Christ, the Son of glory, the Son of God and Lord of glory, the Savior and friend of sinners. They viewed him as the one they had to get rid of at all costs. Now, Mark points out that their intent was dishonest, wasn't it? This was a trick question. It was a trap. Verse 13 says they hoped to what? Trap him in his talk or in his words. Uh, and this is yet another trick question. If you look, if you take some time and look back at Mark's gospel, I won't quote them all for you now, but all through these, these latest chapters, ever since chapter 8, they've been doing this sort of thing again and again. Chapter 8, verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 2. Chapter 11, verses 27 to 33, the question of authority. 
And then later on in this very chapter in verses 18 to 27, the passage right after this one, they do it again. It's like they keep sending people one after another after another to see if they can trip him up, to see if they can get him in trouble with his own, with his own words. Now notice they, they frame their, their deceit with flattery, don't they? Always beware, what does, Jesus, you know, does the Bible say, beware when all men speak well of you? Well, some men speak well of you to get you in trouble. And so they, they used flattery against him. What do they call him? They call him teacher. So it's a title that's been used of Jesus you know, again and again in, in the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes it's translated as, as master. I think teacher is the better way to put it. And if you call somebody a teacher, it's a, it's a show of respect, isn't it? Normally it's a show of deference. It's a show of, you know, if you call somebody your teacher, where are you putting yourself in relation to them? I'm learning. I'm down here and you're up here. Teach me. I need to learn from you. Teach me. They call him teacher. Now, in the previous passage in chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, what do you find? You found them questioning Jesus' authority openly. You know, where did you get this authority to do the things that you're doing? Well, here they feigned humility and a willingness to learn at his feet. They, they actually acted like they were accepting his authority by calling him by calling him teacher, you know, if the direct approach doesn't work, let's try it the other way. Let's call him teacher and act like we're willing to hear whatever he says and, and willing to learn at his feet, all the while plotting his destruction. They were hoping to trip him up, and really they were hoping to destroy him in this, in this trap. Now, they tell Jesus, what do they tell Jesus about him? They say they knew he was true. I mean, it, it all sounds right. They, they knew that he was true. They said that in some ways, we use the phrase, you know, respecter of persons. They're saying, we know that you are no respecter of persons. You don't care who it is you're talking to. You don't care if it's Caesar himself. You'll tell him what's what. Nobody's going to tell you or, or make you change what you're going to say. They were comparing him in, in a sense to the old prophets in the, in the Old Testament. We're willing to say the truth no matter what regarding the ways of God, regardless of whoever might take offense regardless of the consequences. It's ironic. Their description of him is accurate, isn't it? They're, now, they, they didn't mean it. They weren't sincere. But everything they said here about him, taken on, on, you know, on the surface level, is completely true. They weren't wrong in what they, in what they said. The uh, English Bible commentator and Puritan Matthew Poole says this uh, about this flattery. He says, in these words... In these words, they give us the true character of a good teacher. He must be a good man, true, one that will truly teach men the way of God and in the faithful discharge of their duty, not be afraid of the face of men. But herein they condemn themselves, for if our Savior was so, why did they not believe in him and obey what he taught them? If they had meant what they said, it would have been perfect. If they had been willing to actually learn of it at his feet as, as their teacher and do what he said and trust in him, it would have been for their best. Now, it's, it's surely ironic in a way here that they give a, a perfect description of a true servant and messenger of the Lord. And this, this description they give here, you could take this, and you know, if you were, were going to look for a pastor or a teacher, this is exactly what you should look for. This is the standard you should hold them up to. Someone who's true, someone who's not a respecter of persons, someone who fears the Lord more than he fears man, who will not be swayed by how, uh, by how their bold telling of God's truth and his ways might make them look in the eyes of, of men. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul describes something similar about himself in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, where he says this, kind of harsh words. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven, Galatians 1, 8 through 10, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a, a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He repeats it in case we didn't hear it the first time, right? And then listen to what he says. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, his opponents, who are preaching a false gospel, accused him of being a people pleaser of saying what people wanted to hear. And so what does he say? Well, let them be accursed. He's saying, if I can say this with all due respect, he's saying, let them go to hell, literally, twice. And then he says, how's that for people-pleasing? You know, you want people-pleasing? You're not going to find it here. And, and he doesn't say that lightly. He does, this, isn't, this isn't Paul going off the handle on his enemies or people that don't like him. Paul didn't care if they didn't like him. Paul's problem with them is they preached a false gospel. And a false gospel sends people to hell. And so Paul said, there's one thing fitting for someone like that who would, who would trifle with, with people's souls. And he says, if you're going to be a minister of God, if you're going to be a servant of Christ, you have to seek to please God no matter what the consequences may be for doing that before man. Now a servant of the Lord must seek the approval of God, not of man. He must be willing at times to say difficult things, even unpopular and offensive things, although we don't want to give offense for no reason, especially if the true gospel and the truth of the gospel is at stake. It's, it's impossible to please God and please man at all times. And so we make, must make it our sole aim, whether you be a pastor or whatever you do for the Lord, we have to seek to please him and leave the consequences and trust the consequences to God. Now, I would say, is this not one of the main problems in many churches in our day? You know, are, are our pulpits not filled by men and even by women who seek to please men nearly at all costs to make them feel as comfortable as humanly possible, even to entertain them? If you're going to do that, how is it possible to say the difficult things that might need to be said when they become necessary? Is the temptation not going to be very strong to smooth over any rough edges and dull the point and edge of the sword of the word of God, the sword of the spirit. May God keep us from such things. Such, such messengers might fill seats, but they leave their hearers go home empty. It's not what people need. Now make no mistake, the question that these men, these evil men, ask Christ in this passage, it's part of their plan to kill him. They're not just trying to you know, stump, stump the prophet. They want to see him destroyed. The question they're asking was not an innocent question. And think about it like a, it's almost like a minefield is what they're doing. You picture a minefield. This is what their question is meant to be. They're saying, Jesus, walk from here to there. And we're going to step back and watch and see, see what he does. It, it's the old, you know, what's the old, uh, not to be impolite. Uh, there's questions you can't answer. Right, where you can't answer safely. One of them is, is, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? Both answers are bad, and they make you look bad, right? If you say I have, it means you used to, and if you say no, it means you're still doing it. 
There's no right answer. There's no good answer. You're on the hook no matter what you do. Sometimes scoffers, they think this is clever. They say, you know, if God is all-powerful, what do they say? Can God himself make a rock so big that he himself can't lift it? And they think, see, it disproves the power of God. It's a foolish question. Uh, it's, a, it's a dumb question, but they think it's a perfect question. Well, that, that's kind of what they're doing here, although, although the question here is meant to have deadly results. It's meant to end in Christ being, uh, being killed. They didn't think he could answer the question safely. Now, why is that? What is the problem with that question about paying taxes to Caesar? If Jesus were to answer that it's not lawful or permissible to pay taxes to Caesar then the Herodians would have all the ammo they need against him to accuse him of sedition against the Roman Empire. That's a capital offense. They could literally have him killed for it. On the other hand, if Jesus were to say that of course it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to, at the very bare minimum, lose lose esteem in the eyes of, of the Jewish people of his day. And they would certainly reject him as the Messiah. They were hoping their Messiah was going to deliver them from Rome. So if the Messiah shows up and says, hey, everybody, don't forget to pay your taxes, uh, that's not going to be well, well received in the eyes of, of the people who just not too long ago were lining the road for him and throwing their, their cloaks and palm branches on the road and saying, Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of David. Well, let's look at Jesus' answer to that, uh, that trap question. In verses 15 to 17, Mark says this, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? He's looking at the coin, right? Uh, They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, John's gospel in chapter 2 tells us that Jesus knew what was in a man. And he didn't need anybody to tell him what was in a man. And in chapter 3, the next thing you see is a man coming to Jesus, Nicodemus, right? Well, Jesus knew what was in a man here too. And it says he knew their hypocrisy. He knew this was fake. He knew their, that their words were just flattery. They didn't mean it. He knew they had evil design against him in their, in their question. And so he tells them and asks them, you know, why are you putting me to the test? Now, if it was you or me, I think that would be the end of the story. I I just wouldn't answer the question. I would say, you're testing me. Why are you testing me? Jesus doesn't do that. He tells them, I know what you're up to. You're not fooling me. You think you're so smart. I know exactly what you're doing. And then he answers their question anyway. He still answers their question. He does something we wouldn't have do. And he says to them, bring, it, bring me a denarius. Now, a denarius was a Roman coin. You know, we, we, I told my uh, Ben and Eliza on the way to church this morning, you know, when you look at a quarter or a nickel, you know, what do you see on it? You see an, an inscription, an engraving of the picture of a, of a president, you know, whether it be uh, Lincoln on a penny or, or Washington on a quarter or whatnot. Um, and that's what Jesus does. He said, look, look at this coin and what's on the coin. Who's whose likeness and inscription is on it. And so what does he do? He, he, like he often does, he answers a question, at least in part, with another question. He puts the people who were testing him on the hook for answering part of it themselves. He kind of drags them into the minefield with him. Hey, let's go for a ride. Give me your hand. Let's go. You know, let's, let's, uh, let's look around and see where we step and uh, watch your step and you might want to follow me. This might get hairy, right? 
Um, now, he tells them to bring them that coin, and, and they themselves are forced to testify that it was Caesar's image and Caesar's inscription on it. And then what does Jesus say? Verse 17, render or give back. Render as the idea of giving back something that belongs to someone else already. It's not just pay. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a more meaningful word than that. And render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the things that belong to him, and to God the things that are God's. Now, what could possibly be said against that answer? Nothing. And you notice it doesn't say they said anything. It says they marveled. They were astonished at his at him and his answer. The coins that they used that had Caesar's image and inscription on them belonged to him, to Caesar. And so Caesar has every right to ask for part of that back as a tax. Once again, Jesus is showing that, as he said in Luke 11:31, that one greater than Solomon, one with greater wisdom than Solomon, was here. He turned their question back on them, and they were forced to walk into their own trap. J.C. Ryle writes this, He bids them pay tribute to the Roman government in temporal things, earthly things. For by using its money, Rome's money, they allowed themselves bound to do so. You know, if you don't want to pay taxes to Caesar, don't use his money, right? Yet he bids them give obedience to God in spiritual things and not to suppose that duty to an earthly sovereign and heavenly sovereign are incapable of being reconciled one with the other. Here it is. In short... He bids the proud Pharisee not to refuse his dues to Caesar and the worldly Herodian not to refuse his duties to God. So he actually answers more than what's asked. He doesn't, he doesn't stop with, yes, pay taxes, thank you, everybody go home now. He says, you, you all owe something even more to God than you do to Caesar. Taxes are a small thing. They may not feel like a small thing. But compared to what we owe God, what we have to render back to God, taxes are a small or small potatoes. Now, the, the scriptures, the Bible, clearly teaches that you and I as believers are not exempt from any and all rightful obligations to the civil government. We are told to be good citizens. In fact, uh, being believers in Christ ought to make us better citizens, not worse citizens. If your view of something is making you a worse citizen, there's something wrong with how we're viewing what the Bible says. You know, if you, if you go through church history, a lot of the confessions of faith that were penned, Calvin's Institutes and other things, were actually written as an apologia or a defense of Christians to the government. Uh, Augustine's probably his most famous work, uh, The City of God, is a defense of Christians against the charge of them subverting Rome. It's their fault you know, the, the, you know, bef, bef, you know Nero, did, Nero blamed things on Christians. Well, that's a, the world has a long history of blaming their problems on Christ and his followers. And so very often these, these doctrinal statements that we read and, and appreciate, we don't realize that their historical setting and their historical reason for being very often was to try to defend Christians against these kinds of charges, against subverting the government and being uh, bad, bad citizens. So we are, not, we are not as believers exempt from those obligations to the state. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, 13-17 writes this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, these emperors weren't godly people, right? Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, 
you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That would have been very hard to read if you lived under Rome's rule in some, in some situations. A lot of the emperors weren't exactly the godliest of, of men. So that, that is not something new to us in our day, and they've had it much worse than we do on our worst day here. The Apostle Paul says much the same thing in Romans chapter 13. I'll just read the first two verses there. It says, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever therefore resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul's not saying all human governments are just peachy. They're just great. Paul was beheaded under, under Nero in Rome. Paul was in prison, wrote half of his letters or more from prisons, from Roman prisons. You read the book of Acts, he didn't have a good time with the civil government very, very often. And yet Paul could say, let every person be subject to them. Now, of course, there's limits. There are limits to these things. The, the Bible says in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 29, that we must obey God rather than men. So if at any point the civil government or whoever demands something of us contrary to the will of God in Scripture, the answer is no. But that isn't always the case. It isn't really, especially in our situation, it really isn't often the case. It does happen. Uh, but we must, we must be committed to obeying God rather than men. That's the limit of the civil government's place and authority over us. Now our Lord's answer here in the passage, it, it, he answers a lot more than what was asked. He gives us much more than a framework by which to understand church and state kind of, of issues. Here he teaches us that we who are made in the image of God and have been bought with a price by the blood of Christ must make it our business, even our chief end, to glorify God in all that we are. Just as Caesar's image was imprinted on those coins, those denarius, uh, even in a greater sense, the very image of God is imprinted upon every human being. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27 says this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Almost lose track of how many times in that short two-verse passage that God, it's like he's repeating it so we don't miss the point. We are made and created in God's image. Male and female, both created in the image of God. And so if you take the logic of the coin that Jesus uses, uh, the image of God stamped upon us at our creation uh, means that just as we owe to Caesar what is Caesar's, we owe unto God what is God's, and that's our very being, our trust, our love, our obedience, our, our, our everything. We have to render unto God what is God's. Well, what is that? That's us. We owe God everything about, about ourselves. And that's doubly true for those of us who know the Lord and have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, isn't it? We, every human being, owes God obedience and love and service just by the virtue of God creating them in his own image but we're all outside of Christ in rebellion against him but believers 
or even doubly obligated to that. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20? He says, or do you not know, he's talking to believers here, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And then what does he say? So or therefore, glorify God in your body. If you're, if you're a Christian, you were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so even our bodies, not just our spirits, we tend to think like Gnostics sometimes. And it's just my inner person, my spirit, my soul, my body doesn't matter. It's going to get burned up. No, your body is going to be raised from the grave one day in glory. Uh, Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our future resurrection. And what we do with our bodies in this life matters. It matters quite a bit. Another way of saying this is to use the words of the first question of our Shorter Catechism. Many of you have this one. If you have any question in the Shorter Catechism memorized, it's this one, right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end, his main purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So now things such as taxes, rendering unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, is in some way in this life, in this world of sin, it's, it's kind of a necessary evil. You can always argue about how much you're taxed, but the, the idea of taxes in and of themselves, in some ways, is a necessary evil. It's an unpleasant reality which nobody enjoys. You know, nobody. I don't know anybody, no matter how liberal they may be, who sends an extra check. You know, I, you didn't take enough. Here's the rest of my retirement. Take this and, and spread it out as you wish. Um, but rendering unto God that which is God's is—it's not just our obligation and purpose. It's our chief enjoyment as well. It's our chief joy. And comfort as well. For Caesar, the civil government, demands taxes while the King of Kings, the Lord of Glory, Jesus Christ, rather than demanding taxes, bought us with the price, the price of his own blood. He gave himself to ransom sinners like us from death and hell and the grave. And so belonging to Christ is our greatest comfort. Some of you were raised with the Heidelberg Catechism. We will eventually study that on Sunday nights as well when we're done with the Belgic Confession. Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism, every bit as good as uh, the Shorter Catechism's first question, although it's a little bit longer, but it says this, Heidelberg Catechism, question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only, your only real comfort? We have a lot of fake comforts. What is your only comfort in life and death? And here it is, answer that I am not my own. That's the first thing it says, that I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. There it is again. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What makes us, what does the Spirit use to make us willing to live from the heart for Christ? By, by telling us we aren't our own. Not just, not just that we're not on our own. We, aren't, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We've been bought with a price, rescued from slavery to sin and the fear of, of death and the evil one himself. Bought with a price by our faithful Savior. So I asked this morning, 
Do you belong body and soul in life and in death to the Savior Jesus Christ? Have you come to him by faith for forgiveness and life eternal? If you have, you know the only comfort that is able to get you through whatever this world throws your way. You have that comfort in Christ. Nothing the world, the flesh, and the devil can throw your way can undo the comfort that you have if you belong to Christ by faith. And the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior, that alone makes it our joy to give ourselves unto him who fully paid for all of our sins with his precious blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of your great love for us in your Son, that you sent him to to, to live and die in our place, that you have rescued us from the tyranny of the, of the evil one, that you have purchased us by the blood of your Son. We are bought with a price and do not belong to ourselves anymore. We thank you for that great comfort. The only comfort that we have in life and in death is that we do belong, if we are in Christ, we belong to him, body and soul, in life and in death. And nothing can, can ever pluck us from your hand. And we just give you praise and thanks for this, that, that giving back to you uh, ourselves is, is, is nothing. There's no price, there's no obligation uh, that, that we would turn back from knowing that, that our Lord, the Lord of glory, your Son, laid down his very life to pay for our sins, to free us from, self, from, from hell and sin and condemnation. And we give you praise for that. We do pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, does not yet have that only comfort, only real comfort in life and in death, that you might make today the day of their salvation. Turn them from their sin. Turn them to Christ by faith that they might have life, forgiveness, joy, and comfort that, that comes through nothing else than being in Christ and belonging to him. For we ask all of this in his name. Amen.